In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with our new hymn. The month should be pretty familiar, I think. Uh, Comfort, comfort ye, my people. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning neath their sorrows, Lord. Speak ye to Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover, and her warfare now is over. Yea, her sins our God will pardon, blotting out each dark misdeed. All that well deserved his anger, he no more will see or heed. She has suffered many a day, now her griefs have passed away. God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. Hark, the herald's voice is crying in the desert far and near, calling sinners to repentance since the kingdom now is here. Oh, that warning cry obey, now prepare for God away. Let the valleys rise to meet him, and the hills bow down to greet him. Make ye straight what long was crooked, make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble, as befits his holy reign. For the glory of the Lord, now o'er earth is shed abroad, and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken. We'll continue with the Catechism Bible Memory work. It says, uh, oh, 
Jeez, I, I think I got the wrong one in the large print bulletin here. Um, it's uh, what what which do you ha- what do you guys have for catechism? Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Yeah, okay, that's that's correct. Um, let me just grab one of these here real quick. Make sure I got that. Okay. All right. Well, here is other pastors. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Hebrews 13:17. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And we'll continue with the uh, Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Yeah, I, um, Rebecca started doing the bulletins, and then, uh, you know, we're coordinating between me and Rebecca and then the lady at, at peace because we're trying to kind of consolidate everything as much as possible. But it's transition, and so there's less and less typos every week, but... Um, we still find them, so anyhow, um, that is what it is. Okay, so for the hymn of the month, um, kids can go off to Sunday school, by the way, <laughs> now that they're here. Hey, the, uh, the messengers are in the nursery for you. Thank you. Um, in the hymn of the month, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People, uh, this is a great Advent hymn. I think the uh, th- it's the third Sunday in Advent. We get that reading in Isaiah of where this comes from. Comfort, comfort you, my people. Speak ye peace, thus saith our God. Uh, what I wanted to just mention about this hymn is that it, I mean, its title, obviously, and then a lot of the text in there all comes from Old Testament prophecy language. And Old Testament prophets are great during Advent because you're thinking about the coming of Christ, and if they're prophesying the coming of Christ, then um, they fit very well. But what I um, wanted to point out there is that if you think about the context of the Old Testament prophets thinking about this, the coming, the theme of the coming of the Messiah, and the day when the warfare will be over, and so on and so forth. Really what they're thinking about is what we've been talking about a lot in, in Bible study the last couple months is uh, the return from the Babylonian captivity. That's what's on their mind, right? It's uh, Oftentimes it's these 
Israelites that are dispersed throughout the land of Babylon and the temple's been destroyed and they're waiting to come back. Right? That's that's kind of the the context in which a lot of these prophecies are given. Right? So um, in that Isaiah passage, comfort, comfort you, my people, speak ye peace, thus saith our God, um, that her tell her that our sins are I cover, that her warfare now is over. That's all to them, and immediately that prophecy is about uh, that they've paid their due and that God has uh, forgiven their sins and that he's going to allow them to come back to Jerusalem. Now, what I want to say about that is that they're actually a little bit mistaken, right? When they hear those prophecies, it's not that those prophecies aren't about that, but that they're about that plus more. Right? And I think this is the mistake that you see in the Pharisees and in uh, some of the other and in the scribes in the in the Gospels is that they think that everything's fit good, right? They think that because they've returned. They've returned to the temple, the temple's been rebuilt, and they're there living their lives, and they don't think that they want another Messiah, right? They think that um, it's all... It's all good. And there's what I, what I, what I want to say is that these prophecies are actually more about Jesus and more about the life in Christ that all Christians have than it is just about those Israelites that were dispersed in the Babylonian captivity. right? It would actually be doing a disservice to the text to say that it was just about this event in history, right? And you could easily read the text and come away and just say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's it's symbolic of Jesus coming for us. But really, when Isaiah is talking, it's just about the Babylonian captivity. Right. And then it's, you know, by way of analogy, it's for us, too. I would say it, it actually is for us. Does that distinction make sense? Right. That the Old Testament was written. This is how Paul talks. The Old Testament was written for our instruction, right? And it's not that it, it, do, it does apply in a particular way to those Old Testament Christians, but it applies to all Christians because it's about Jesus, right? It's not like some, – sometimes you read commentators. Maybe, maybe this is more of an academic problem, but sometimes you read commentators and they're like, well, the prophecy is really about you know this or that event, you know, with the Babylonian captivity, and then kind of by application, um, you can make a metaphor about our captivity to sin and Jesus coming to save us. Um, but that's really not what the Bible's intending here, or something like that. I would say the Bible is intending that application, right? So, um, anyway, that I I'm kind of going to talk a little bit about. A similar theme to that in the sermon today, so it's kind of on my mind, but um, that's what I wanted to start with, with the hymn of the month there. All right, uh, in the catechism memory work, we had that Hebrews passage, which I messed up in the large print bulletin, which is what I use in my binder. Um, but uh, anyhow, it's a it's a good good passage. You should read it. All right, that's that's all I have to say about that. We should get started with Ezekiel. Um, any questions on, on the hymn of the month or 
So, starting a new uh, prophet, going through the prophets of Judah, making our way through the prophets of Judah, and trying to make sure that we hit every book of the Bible in our overview of the Bible, which we've been doing for over three years now. So, um, it is a good time, nonetheless. All right, so Ezekiel, uh, it's kind of my favorite prophet. Uh, Andrew's middle name is Ezekiel. Um, that's his his Bible name. Andrew is actually not his Bible name. It's more of a family name for us. I mean, it is a Bible name, obviously, but um, Andrew's my middle name, so then he got a different Bible name in his middle name, which is Ezekiel. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Just a fun fact, but that's how it goes. All right, so um, let's do a little bit of background on the book of Ezekiel. And on the prophet. So it's going to be uh, some things are very similar to Jeremiah. Some things are very different. Uh, we'll just start with the basic stuff. So he's prophesying um, between 593 and 570. And he tells you where he's at and who the kings are and whatnot. So it's um, not hard to know exactly when he prophesies. So that's good. It's not it's not hard to date. Um, but this is the time, if you have one of those sheets, I, I don't even know where they, I think they're all gone. i got to print some more of those out. But um, if you look in the chart of kings and prophets and whatnot, uh, this is during the uh, first wave of the Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And if you remember when we went through the kings, kind of, if you go back and reread some of the end of Second Kings, um, like the last couple chapters, a few chapters, there there was actually a couple of Babylonian attacks before the complete fall of Jerusalem, right? And there's, so it kind of comes in waves, right? And there's still like ostensibly a nation of Judah while they're under Babylonian rule for, for a while, right? Um, that they still have, they kind of have their own kings, but they're more of a vassal state before before they're completely sieged, right? Before they're com- completely taken over. Um, so this is when he starts his prophecy, and Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. But what is interesting about Ezekiel is that he is a priest of Judah uh, take, who's taken captive in this first wave. So he's a priest who, who ends up going to Babylon in the first uh, captivity of, of Judah. So he, he's a priest taken captive. And his, so th- this is a kind of who, where, uh, when, and... Uh, where is that he prophesies in Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. Um, and specifically, he tells you he received his first vision at the Kibar Canal or Kbar Canal or Chibar Canal or Chebar Canal, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I don't really care. All right. I'll probably say Kbar or something like that. Um, Traditionally, the uh, ch when it's transliterated from Hebrew is a k 
sound. So we'll do k a bar canal. But uh, yeah, there's a couple rivers. If you look at a map of Babylon, there's a couple rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates specifically that run kind of through there. And um, this is a canal off one of those rivers, right? So we, we know where it is. Anyhow, this is where, uh, this is where he prophesies, okay? And he's prophesying basically to the uh, – for the most part, he does have a section where he speaks judgment on the other nations. Um, but the, the nations aren't even – that he prophesies against really aren't even where he is. Um, it's more of a general prophecy against them because he focuses a lot on Tyre and Egypt But in, the, in that section. But he's ma mainly preaching to – the Israelites that are in captivity with him in Babylon. That's that's basically who he's preaching to, right? He's preaching to Israel, to Judah, uh, to the Judites or the uh, Israelites, the Judeans, I should say. The Judeans with him there in Babylon. <coughs> All right, a couple other kind of just textual features as, as way of background is uh, that – Genre-wise, he's kind of an interesting – genre and literature-wise, he's a pretty interesting prophet. This is one of, why, why he's kind of one of my favorites, and I find that people either love this or hate this. So it was it was uh, funny. I was talking to someone recently. I don't remember who – who um, you know said they'd been reading through the Bible, and they just couldn't handle Ezekiel. They were like, that was the worst book, right? I cannot get through it. Um, and I, and like I said, he's kind of my favorite prophet. So I, I find that people love this, right? This, but in, as far as the literature go there, there's lots of, um, metaphor, right? I mean, the prophets in general have a lot of metaphor, but lots of metaphor, parable and allegory. And there's. A lot of like a lot of I guess a way of summarizing that would be to say a lot of images, right? So the way he preaches and then he even acts some stuff out. We'll talk about that in a second. The way he preaches is very vivid, and he ha and he has visions, right? Um, which is a little bit different than some of the other prophets, and we're going to talk about that in a second as well. But um, there's a lot of kind of dissecting you have to do, right? Because he's gonna say he's gonna basically constantly, he's always giving you an an app like an image or an analogy to to compare something to, which takes a little bit more work to get through, right? But it also does make his point very vivid. So if you like imagery, if you like kind of a vivid literature then Ezekiel is great if you want someone to just tell you this is what happened and this is what we think about it and this is why we believe what we believe, then you should probably go read Romans instead. But um, Ezekiel is still great. So, you, I mean, you should really read all of it. But this, that's just something to keep in mind with Ezekiel that, I mean, the prophets are like this in general, but Ezekiel especially is very, very image vivid focused in a way okay um going along with that the other thing i'll just point out is that 
Ezekiel is one of these prophecy books, prophetic books. Let's make sure I... Yeah, okay. Um, that contains some apocalyptic uh, revelations or apocalyptic uh, literature, genre, um, prophecies. And when we say apocalyptic, what we're talking about is, well, the word apocalyptic, the word apocalypse, um, that's another version of the word revelation, and or which where we get the word revealing, right? But apocalypse or apocalyptic means the unveiling of something, right? So it's uh, the drawing back of the curtain, right? Or the lifting of the wedding veil where, where the groom gets to see who his bride is. And when we use the term in um, Bible studies, what we're talking about is the revealing of Jesus Christ coming to us and specifically in his final coming. Right. And what will happen when Jesus finally comes again? Right. What is the vision of of God's glory revealed to mankind in the final coming of Jesus? And the reason I point this out uh, is that, well, a couple reasons. One, apocalyptic literature needs to be read as apocalyptic literature, meaning we should recognize it as an unveiling or a revealing of something about Jesus, right? That we're looking for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And second, apocalyptic literature, by nature of it revealing the glory of God and by nature of it coming in visions to prophets, like it does in the book of Revelation, it's going to be, again, these are kind of connected, very uh, full of images and metaphor and allegory, right? Um, and you can include parable in that as well. Parable is a little bit different. And when we see those things, we need to take them for what they are, right? So we believe those things are literally true in the sense that they are literally true revelations and visions that are given to literal true prophets throughout history. But we don't necessarily believe they're literally true in that, in the sense that uh, they are exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes again, because they're images, right? They're metaphors. So, I mean, Jesus himself does this about himself all the time, right? When Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep, you're not looking, when you when you look for Jesus, you don't look for a piece of wood with hinges and a doorknob, right? He doesn't mean he's literally a door. He means he is the way, right? It's a metaphor. But that's it's still true. It's still literal in the sense that it's a literal, true uh understanding of who Jesus is, that he is like a door in this way, right? So whenever Ezekiel gives these visions of the Lord, uh, we should take them in that sense, right? Um, and the reason I, I bring all of that up is because this book is one of the books along with Daniel that is very closely tied to the book of Revelation, right? So eventually I want to do a Revelation Bible study one day and when I do, what you'll see in Revelation is that you cannot understand Revelation if you don't already have the images 
that are given in Ezekiel and Daniel and these other prophets, right? And um, those those images, they're actually in some ways clearer here than they are in Revelation. But if you have them here, then in Revelation they also become clear. So that's kind of just a thought for you to file away for you know whenever you study Revelation next. But um, you have to know the prophets to be able to read Revelation. And some of that apocalyptic prophecy starts here. So this is actually kind of preparatory work in some ways for the book of Revelation. All right. Any question on Ezekiel's background? Yeah. Right. And they don't, they don't see it that way, you know. Yeah, there's, there's tons of ways that reading the Bible can go wrong. And one of those ways, yeah, for example, would be to um, try and only ever apply the Bible to my current situation without taking into context the what when the Bible's written and who, who the audience is. And, and these types of things, right? So um, to give you an example, in the book of Revelation, in the first, it's either the first or second verse, I can't remember, John says that this is, you know, a, a revealing of, of Jesus Christ about the things that must soon take place. Well, that tells us that John, part of the revelation to John is that a lot of the things that he preaches about are things that take place soon, right, within his life even, or, or uh, relatively soon after after his life. And I think you can see a lot of what takes place in the book of Revelation being fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which would make sense with that verse, right? But um, there are a lot of people who because the book of Revelation, well, the book of Revelation it's, itself in, the, in its interpretations today has uh, a lot of different avenues in which people take it. But one of those avenues is like you were saying that you know people only want to apply it to today. And it's like, look, you're ignoring the fact that that John himself said that the things that some of the things that were going to happen in this book were going to take place in his life soon, right? So um, you have to take that into context, and that's not that there's not applications for those things to us today, but there's there is a a difference there if something's about the destruction of the temple versus if it's about you know whatever you see on the news channel, right? Now there might be applications there. But we have to. We just have to be careful with that, right? And and again, we also have to be careful with this idea. The reason I was talking about things being literally true is because we we're Bible believing Christians, right? We're conservative Bible believing Christians. We're we're the first Protestants, right? We're like Scripture alone, and so we want to be able to say yes, we believe the Bible is a hundred percent true, 
right? A hundred percent literally true, whatever the word literally means, right? See, people say literally all the time when they actually mean figuratively, right? Um, this is one of the problems with the English language today is the de- definition of the word literally is changing, but um, it's not really a problem. It's just you have to recognize it. But when we say that, we, d- we need to make sure we don't fall in the trap of not taking into account the context or the genre or the literary device that's being used, right? So like, again, just, I mean, a very simple example with the, do- the door to the sheep, right? Jesus is not a rectangle piece of wood with with a window and and hinges, right? That's not who like the essence of Jesus, right? So we have to be careful with those things. So yeah, and that can be difficult because uh, there are there are people who kind of do that selectively, but not all the time, right? So all right. Um, any other questions on the background there? All right, let's look at some of the main themes of Ezekiel that we want to keep an eye out for. Um, One of those is going to go along with what we had in Jeremiah, which is God's enacted word, that his word is powerful. And one of the ways that God shows his word is powerful to accomplish things in the prophets is by having the prophets actually act out the word. And Ezekiel does that more than anyone else. I mean, Jeremiah kind of goes certain places, right? If you remember, Jeremiah went to the temple to preach the temple sermon and point to things, and he went to the potter's house to talk about the the potter and the clay. But uh, Ezekiel really acts things out, right? And he's commanded to. Um, so we're going to get that in chapters uh, 4 and 5 is when Ezekiel does this. And um, we're going to – I think we're going to look at chapter 4 is the one I want to look at. But there's a couple different ones. But in chapter 4, he has to uh, bind himself and lie on his side for a certain amount of days and then lie on his other side for a certain amount of days. All the while, he has to uh, – cook certain foods that the Lord commands him to while cooking that food over a pile of human dung. Yeah, right? Super random. But it we'll talk about what it means. Uh, the, the short answer about what it means is that it's a symbol of the punishment that the Lord is bringing on Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness, All right? That they're, they're bound in captivity and they're um, basically eating, uh, they have no fortune, right? They're eating uh, of wickedness and they're they're eating things that are rotten, right? So we'll we'll talk about that. But anyhow, that's, uh, this is kind of why Ezekiel is kind of my favorite prophet, right? It's just, it's just a wild, it's a wild ride, right? (laughs) Like he said, what? (laughs) Um, All right, so that's God's enacted word. That's that's one thing we'll look at. All right. The um, this is this theme is going to kind of come up multiple different ways, but the first th- thing we'll look at is it's the glory of the Lord, and the really just the glory of the Lord. We could just say this is the major theme of the the whole book, but um, we'll talk about it a couple different ways. Um, 
First of all, the glory of the Lord withdrawn. Right? So part of the judgment in this book is that the destruction of the temple symbolizes that God has withdrawn his glory from Judah. And this is a judge a major judgment against the people, right? This is and this was the whole point of the tabernacle of the temple. This was the whole point of the sacrificial system. This was the whole point of the old covenant was that God would be with his people, right? A holy God would be with his unholy people, right? And that the glory of the Lord would be there. And the glory of the Lord has been withdrawn, right? The temple's been destroyed. Now, a kind of like interesting theme that goes along with that is that the glory of the Lord, I'm just going to write glory, the glory of the Lord um, does still come among an unthankful people. And the way this works is that at the beginning, we'll see in chapter one, and this is the thing that starts the book off, Ezekiel, when he's at the Kabar Canal, has this vision, and it's kind of apocalyptic, this vision of the glory of the Lord. And the question right away is, what the heck is the glory of the Lord doing in Babylon? He's not, the, the Lord's not supposed to be in Babylon, right? Why is the Lord there? The Lord's supposed to be in Jerusalem. Why is the glory of the Lord, why has it come down uh, to Ezekiel in Babylon? And it's because the Lord still wants to be with his people, right? And, but to, to kind of go along with that, right? So that's, that's like, oh, this is great. The glory of the Lord's here. One of the things that happens is Ezekiel sees it, but Ezekiel is also told no one's going to recognize it. No one's going to listen, right? And so that that's that also goes back to the enacted word thing. Whenever he does all this insane acting out of the Lord's prophecies, the sad part is he knows no matter how hard he tries, right? And that, that's part of the point of it. It's supposed to be super dramatic. It's supposed to get people's attention, no matter how much he enacts the word, they're still not going to listen, right? And they're still going to be unfaithful people. So that's uh, one of the things that we want to kind of keep an eye for, okay? Um, I'm actually going to do these in a different order than I wrote them. I'm going to keep it the glory theme. Um, uh, A theme of hope in the book is that the glory is restored, right? That there will be a day when Judah gets to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and the glory of the Lord will be restored. And uh, a lot of the prophecies of hope have to do with this glory coming back, right? So it was withdrawn, and now it's going to be restored. It's going to come back, right? So... Um, the return of the glory, I should say. That would actually be a better word there, I think, is glory returned is the theme of hope, right? 
All right. Um, then a couple more kind of themes of judgment and hope that go on. The last two we're going to look at is uh, the theme of um, just general ex- – It's there's a strong focus on the life of the exile, right, because they're in exile. Ezekiel himself is in exile. So exile and then, like we kind of mentioned, the life of exile, which is a life of famine and pestilence. So that's part of the theme of judgment, uh, the overall judgment that we're going to be looking at. Okay. Um, then finally, uh, another theme of hope, uh, to end on a hopeful note here, is the theme of a new spirit. And a new temple, right? And things made new. And that this is a cleansing of the people. A cleansing of the people. All right. Um, and this comes up a couple times, um, specifically in like chapters like 34 through 36 and 37. You get things like the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Where... The Lord's going to put a new spirit uh, in the people. Um, in 34, you get the going to take the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, right? Um, and then a lot of prophecies about the the new temple being built. So this kind of cleansing of Judah that they're going to they're going to get to start over, right? They're going to get to begin again. All right. So this is all the main themes here. Any questions on on that so far, or thoughts, concerns? All right. Um, let's go through an outline of the book then. Let me go over here. I think I can fit it right here on this side of the board. All right, so this will help kind of guide where we're going. Um, and since we have Advent services, we should be able to just kind of keep this on the board, which would be good. All right, so um, chapters uh, 1 through 3 are Ezekiel's call and his inaugural vision with the, the glory of the Lord. Which, like I said, the, you, immediately you get introduced into this theme of the glory of the Lord. And the vision, just to kind of give it away a little bit, uh, you can go and read it. We're not going to have time to talk about it today. Is of the Lord on a throne writing this structure, if you will, that's being held up by creatures. And on the bottom of the creatures are wheels. And so part of the image there is that the glory of the Lord can move around, right? It shows up in Babylon. It's been withdrawn from Jerusalem. Um, and we're hoping it goes back to Jerusalem with the people with it. So th- that's kind of the, the theme there. Um, four through five is, again, the enacted word. These are the big uh, feet, the, 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 I don't know how to say it, the plays that, he prophesies, right, the the kind of show he puts on, the demonstrations he gives. Um, so there's about – there's like three different main ones, and then 
The one in chapter four is the one I already described. We'll try and briefly look at all of them. All right. Chapter six through ten begins his judgment on Judah slash Israel, right? All, All the Israelites. And because um, at this point, by the way, I should I should mention this. I I feel like I haven't mentioned this before in a while. That at, at this time in history, right? Initially, the um, northern kingdom, Israel, was taken captive by Assyria, right? Well, now that that's all been subsumed into Babylon, right? Babylon's taken that all over. So now uh, both Israel and Judah are are taken by Babylon, right? So the kingdom. The kingdom's not united again, really, until the return from captivity, but they are kind of mixed back together in some ways. All right. Um, And then chapter 11, uh, we get this uh, small vision of hope for Israel. And these are kind of this, uh, like, 6 through 11 is kind of this block that is um, going to mirror the rest of the book, right? So you get judgment and then hope, judgment and then hope. Um, these these chapters kind of block out and then lead into the rest of the things, right? So um, 12 through 24 is going to be more judgment on Israel, right? Connected to 6 through 10. It's kind of the structure of the book. And then 25 through 32 is going to be judgment for the nations, right? And he's going to talk specifically about Tyre and Egypt the most. And with Tyre and Sidon, <coughs> um, that's a very important prophecy because uh, what he talks about there is Gog, and if you remember the book of Revelation, you have Gog and Magog, right? So mm-hmm. this is one of those kind of apocalyptic passages there where you don't understand who Gog is if you haven't read the book of Ezekiel, right? So um, that's an important uh, kind of application of what we were saying earlier there. Um, 33, we find out that – remember what I said about the first wave thing earlier, um, the first Babylonian siege? Well – in chapter 33, there's a few um, um, a guy who's escaped from Jerusalem who ends up in Babylon and runs into Ezekiel, and he gives him the news now that the temple's been destroyed. So Jerusalem has fallen, is 33. Well, the second half of 33. The first half of 33 is... Um, about Ezekiel and about his being a watchman for Israel, which comes up in chapter uh, three as well. But that's more of a sub category. All right. And then uh, 34 through 37. It's a pretty long book. He, Ezekiel's really one of the major prophets, right? So you got like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are like the major prophets, right? A bit. The long, longer books. All right. Um, this is when we get hope for Israel. And 
this this all should sound kind of familiar with the other prophets, right? Judgment and hope and judgment for Israel, hope for Israel, judgment for the nations, hope for the nations. All right, it's all fairly common outline here. Uh, 38 and 39, that's hope for the nations. And then uh, 40 through 48 is probably my favorite part of the book, which is hope for all creation. And this is, again, some of that apocalyptic um, literature there. But one of the things you really get uh, here in this section is the, the new temple vision. And it's this vision that Ezekiel has of what the new temple in the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. And it's glorious. And it can be kind of boring if you don't know what you're reading because he talks a lot about the measurements of the temple and things like that. But um, it's it really is a glorious vision uh, that ties together a lot of themes. So anyhow, that's the outline of the book. Um, it's kind of a long outline because it's kind of a long book. But that's the simplest I could I can make it for our purposes. All right. Um, any questions on that? And then next week, what we'll start doing? Well, I guess we have five minutes. Um, maybe, maybe we'll start going through a little bit of it now. But we can start going through key passages next, of course. So, yeah, Gary. Yeah. He's, you're feeding the word to us as, as one of his. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those images are very helpful in that way. Because I'm not going to forget it. I've had animals. I understand how. Right. You know, a lot of people don't understand why an animal would come to me more than it would come to somebody else, but it's usually whoever feeds them. It's who mm-hmm. they come to and listen to. Right. Yeah. The, the images are very helpful in this way. And I think for most people that um, if you get the right image, then it re- images really do help people get a deeper understanding of what is going on. That's that's why we use analogies to explain things all the time. I mean, um, it, explaining by analogy is probably the most common method of trying to explain a concept to someone. Right. Because very I mean, sometimes people are a little more less image people like like I said, the guy was talking to, you know, he's like, I just don't get I'd rather just someone give me the straightforward answer or whatever. And so, I, I mean, there's there is something to that, that some people prefer that. And that is in the Bible, too. Right. Like uh, Paul makes very detailed like biblical arguments based on doctrine in the book of Romans and Galatians, right? Like he's, he does that. And and Jesus does that too sometimes, right? He'll, when he argues with the Pharisees especially, he'll, he'll make very like straightforward biblical arguments, right? Um, but 
there's also something to be said for for analogy, right? For parable, um, this is why Jesus teaches, and he, uh, I, for whatever reason, these verses have been sticking out in my head a lot. But when Jesus says, um, "He who has ears, let him hear; he who has eyes, let him see," right? And the other verses too about like in John's gospel when he John says about the purpose of miracles are written that you may believe. Um, he's talking to believers there. And how Jesus explains that the parables are things that the unbelievers aren't going to understand. That for Christians, the parables and the miracles of Jesus and the images all throughout the Bible are just incredibly helpful in giving these concepts and in teaching who Jesus is and what he's done for us. right? And in really giving a depth to the faith. Right, like, because if if all Christianity was was just a very straightforward set of beliefs, which it, I mean, it is, it is a set of beliefs, right? But if if all it was was kind of like you're a sinner, Jesus died for you and he rose again, and by that he's given you his righteousness. And one for you, eternal life. And so you just need to repent and and believe. And, you know, maybe here's the Ten Commandments so you know basically how you're supposed to live. That is a fair summary of the Christian faith. But the Bible is a lot longer than that, right? And God wants us to have the whole Bible. So we should do our due diligence and see what else is there, right? Um, like, the Bible could be a lot shorter if God wanted it to, right? If all he wanted to do was just give us a basic summary of the faith and, like, a very basic set of beliefs to to understand, I mean, he could have done that. I, I could probably do that in, like, the front and back page of a sheet, you know? Like, it wouldn't be that difficult, but he wants to give us so much more, right? And uh, he didn't he didn't write us a dogmatics textbook. He wrote us a collection of 66 books that are a variety of literatures and genres and poetry and prose and histories and apocalyptic literature and all of these things. And so that's a gift, right? And we should we should treasure that gift. and we should find all those things. And, and dwell on them and, and, and think about them and enjoy them. So anyway, um, thank you for asking that question so I could use up the last five minutes of class and end on a good stopping point. Any final questions or comments? All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, especially today for the book of Ezekiel and for the prophecies and the visions that he has provided us according to your spirit and your word. We know that these things are written for our instruction, and we pray that we would hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace the hope of everlasting life. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.